read, but I haven't seen Jilly this morning. Oh, you're there, Jilly. Jilly, what's the page number, please? Is it there? Page 973. 973, everyone. If you need a Bible yourself, pop a hand up. So we're reading from Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Thank you, Jilly. Good morning again, everybody. Let's um, pray as, um, as we begin. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we just pray that this morning you would reveal truth to us. Please, Father, please show us the truth about ourselves. Show us what we're really like. Show us what we really need. And show us the truth about your Son, the Lord Jesus. Show us how he is everything that we need. Help us to fix our eyes on him this morning, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to leave this place glorifying and praising his name. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning I, I don't want to <clears throat> uh, waggle on the tee too much, uh, to use a golfing metaphor. I just want to get straight down uh, on and into it. And um, this morning we're going to see um, three things. I want to pull out three things that are at the heart of becoming a Christian and, and of being a Christian, actually. And then I want us to see two surprising truths. So that's where we're headed um, 
three things at the heart of becoming a Christian and two surprising truths that we see in this passage. So, so these three things at the heart of, of becoming a Christian. First up, we see this. He calls us. He calls us. Just put yourself in Matthew's shoes for a moment. It's the start of an ordinary day. He's sat in his booth. He's doing what he does every day. Maybe he's got his coffee on the desk and his spreadsheets open and big pile of money ready and Mrs. Smith comes up and like, okay, yeah, you earned this, thanks very much. And Some for the Romans, some for me. Next, it goes on and goes on. But he's, he's totally not expecting what happens next, is he? He's, he's not looking for it. He's not looking for Jesus. He, he, but then, bam, his world is totally turned upside down. Jesus comes looking for him. Jesus calls him. Now, Tim Keller, when he's talking about this kind of thing, off, uh, likens it to adventure stories that we read. Now, for, for Tim Keller, he, he loves um, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and those kind of things. So, so think of, of Bilbo Baggins at the start of The Hobbit. He's quite happy being in Bag End. Adventure comes looking for him and finds him and sweeps him up and takes him on, on, on the... On the uh, on, on all, the, all that follows. And that's something like what happens for us as, as Christians too. Jesus comes looking for us. That's the, that's the spiritual reality that's, that's going on. Now, in my own experience, I'd grown up in a church, going along to Sunday school uh, every week and kind of could put my hand up and answer the questions and all, all of those sorts of things. But Christianity, Jesus, meant nothing to me, really. On a Sunday, I'd go to church, but then the rest of the week, it made no difference to my life whatsoever. For me, it was just a kind of cultural thing that I did with my family week in, week out on Sundays. But then over time, something changed. I don't think I could put my finger on exactly the moment that... That, that it happened, but something switched inside me, within me. I was drawn as a teenager into seriously looking at Jesus, into seriously considering him. So I started to study Mark's gospel with three other buddies and, and, and our youth leader. And week by week, as we went through the gospel of Mark, I found myself irresistibly drawn to Jesus. And realizing at the same time my, my need, how, how wrong I'd been in my assumptions about Christianity and, and about Jesus up to that point. And as I look back now, I can see this, that this is the reality that was, was going on in me. He called me. Because spiritually speaking, the New Testament tells us that, that we are dead in our sins. But God makes us alive. Think of Lazarus, dead in the tomb. Jesus saying, take the stone away, and everyone saying, no, it's going to stink if you do that, Jesus. He's been in there a while. <laughs> Nevertheless, Jesus calls out Lazarus. And, and Lazarus is, is brought back to life. as a wonderful picture of what happens spiritually in us. So firstly, we see here, 
Jesus calls us. Foundational thing of, of, of becoming a Christian. But then secondly, we need to see that he says to us, follow me. Follow me. And this is so huge. He doesn't say, follow this uh, kind of self-help advice. Uh, follow this bit of teaching or, or, or this way of life. Jesus says, follow me. And this is the most foundational part of Christianity right here, isn't it? It is all centred on a person, on, on the Lord Jesus. We are called to follow him. Not in the way we might follow someone on social media and sort of, you know, every now and then flick through our feed and laugh at a funny video they put out. No. Following Jesus is, is, is having him as the one who is the ultimate authority in our life. The one who calls the shots. Now I wonder, who, who is that in, in your life? Who's the ultimate authority in, in your life? I guess for most of us, it's just ourselves before we become Christians. Maybe we don't even think about it too much. But by nature, that's what we default to. I'm going to do what feels good to me. I'm the ultimate authority. I'm just going to get on and do with it. Jesus says, Jesus calls us, and he calls us to follow him, to put him first. That's, that's the call of Jesus, to, to follow him. So he calls us. He calls us to follow him. And thirdly, he breaks our old way of looking at the world and replaces it with something new. He breaks our old way of looking at the world and replaces it with something new. And I guess this is what's at the heart of his mini parable about cloth and wineskins in verses 16 and 17. Old wineskins are brittle and inflexible. You pour new wine in that's full of life and not finished fermenting yet. It's going to expand and it's going to break those old wineskins because they're so brittle and they, they can't cope with it. What's, what's Jesus saying? He's saying he's the new wine. And our old way of thinking about the world, our, our kind of framework for making sense of everything is brittle and entrenched perhaps and not flexible enough to adapt or change or grow Jesus calls us to follow him he, he challenges us he brings life and renewal and he bursts through those old paradigms that we have those old ways of trying to make sense of the world that, that, we, that we used to have they, they can't contain him he explodes out of them Jesus is this, this new wine and he needs new wineskins to, to be contained, new ways of seeing the world. Now we get a, a great example of exactly this with the Apostle Paul uh, talking in, in Philippians chapter 3. And we've been going through Philippians in our home group. Um, and it's been great. We'll get onto this bit shortly. But... Uh, but up on the screen, here's verses um, 4 to 9 of Philippians 3. Let me read. Uh, so Paul is basically laying out his, um, his credentials. 
And uh, here's what he says. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me now, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith, faith in Christ, the righteous that comes from God, from, from the basis of faith. So do you, do you see what he's saying? All those things that I used to put all my store in. This is, this is who I am. This is how I'm right with God. Because of my ethnicity. Because of my education. Because of my background. Because of how I kept the law. That, that was his old wineskin. That was his old way of looking at the world and, and making sense of it all. That was how he thought he was right with God. But Jesus burst through that wineskin. And he says whatever was, uh, he, he, he considers all of that rubbish. In fact, he uses a much stronger word for it here that I, I couldn't possibly say here on a, on a Sunday in front of all you lovely people. Um, that's the, the paradigm shift that's happened. That's the massive change that's, that's gone on. Jesus has, has broken through his old way of looking at the world and making sense of it and replaced it with his own, with this, with this, with this new thing. So as we think about these, these three things, I want to ask you first of all, um, particularly if, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this morning, is Jesus calling you? Is he calling you? I wonder if you have that sense of wanting to find out more about him. Perhaps you don't know where that's come from or, 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 or where it's headed. Is Jesus calling you? Well, let me in, in, encourage you to make the most of the opportunities you have on Sundays and, and through the week to talk to Christian friends. Um, come and talk to me. Come and talk to anyone that you see up the front here. We're, we're going to be doing... Um, hope explored again after half term and that's a fantastic resource to help you explore what christianity is all about to explore who jesus is to explore explore what it means to, to follow him let me encourage you is he calling you um come and come and talk to us more but then perhaps for those of us who are christians let me, let me ask you, when was the last time you changed your way of looking at things because of Jesus? Jesus has this habit of bursting through our old wineskins, bursting through the categories that we like to kind of put, put him in. Are we in danger of getting too brittle, too entrenched in our thinking about things sometimes? <laughs> Can I encourage us to, to search our hearts on those things and to see, do we, do we have the, the humility to entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus, to let him be the one who's calling the shots?
When, when did you last change your way of looking at things because of Jesus? It's quite a challenging thing to think through, isn't it? Well, we've thought about three things at the heart of becoming a Christian. I want to move on to looking at two surprising truths. Two surprising truths. And the first one is this. He's not come, Jesus has not come for those who think they're good enough already. But he's come for those who know their need. He's not come for those who think they're good enough already. He's come for those who know their need. Now, the the contrast between Matthew and, and his friends and the Pharisees, on the other hand, could not be starker. Tax collectors were hated. They were seen as traitors. They're working for the enemy, the Romans, the occupying force. They're collecting taxes on behalf of the occupying Romans. And on top of that, they were known to be dishonest too, taking an extra slice off everything that they get in to line their own pockets. So these are guys who were hated and despised on a level with sort of you know, Nazi collaborators, Pharisees, on the other hand, they're experts in the Old Testament law. Morally, they are blameless. They are upright, they are respected, they are feared, they are hugely important and significant people around at the time. And Jesus says he's come for the Matthews. And uh, so, so these Pharisees, these morally upright experts in the law, They are appalled that Jesus spends any time at all with Matthew and his friends. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This isn't a kind of neutral question, not just sort of asking out of interest. Oh, oh, by the way, it's interesting that he does that. No, no. This is a rebuke. What is Jesus doing hanging out? With these, with these guys. In, in their world, in their mind, they are, there are two groups of people. They are the righteous, that's them and their buddies, and, they are, and there are sinners. Sinners need to be shunned, need to be punished. That's in their, in their minds. And Jesus' reply to them is astonishing. Verse 12 to 13, on, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, at first glance, it might look like he's reinforcing them in their understanding of themselves as as righteous, as kind of right before God, and that he's not come for them, but he's come for sinners. But the truth is that that these guys are nowhere near as healthy or as, as righteous as they think. In Jesus' answer to them, he quotes from Hosea chapter 6. And he says, go and learn what this means. Which is actually a a, a kind of rabbinic phrase. That these Pharisees and teachers, they would use that all the time as a a sort of rebuke to people. To say, you clearly haven't understood this part of this law, so go away and understand what it means. And then come back to me. Jesus uses this for these Pharisees. Hosea 6, verse 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. 
Now often in, in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, when, when a writer is quoting from the Old Testament, he's not meaning us to just take that one verse that he's picked out from that Old Testament passage, but to think about the, the wider context, the, the chapter, the section, even the whole book, to have all that in view when we're just kind of picking out one verse. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here with these Pharisees. Because what you find in the book of Hosea is that God is angry with his people. He is angry with his people. They, they were continuing with an outward appearance of religion, just kind of going through the rituals and the sacrifices. But the reality was that they'd, they'd lost the center. They'd lost the main thing. They'd lost a, a love for God himself. Hosea, as you read through that book, he's asked to marry a prostitute. Someone who he knows is going to be repeatedly unfaithful to him. He's asked to do that as, as a vivid picture of God's people's love for, for God himself. Because that's exactly what they were to him, unfaithful. So the, the, the empty rituals in Hosea's day that God's people were going through were, were just a shell. They were just a sham. And actually it's, it's more about making them feel good and making them feel important rather than truly worshipping God, seeking him, loving him. So do you see what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees in picking up all these themes from Hosea? He's saying... That, that's what you're doing. You've forgotten the centre. You've made it all about you. All these empty rituals. You've missed the main thing. Because, because here's the thing. Our actions reveal our true theology. Our actions reveal our true theology, our true understanding of, of God and ourselves. The sign of someone who has come to know Christ is love. Not religious performance and external piety. It's, it's love. Love for the one who has forgiven us, even when we were his enemies, even when we were appalling sinners. A love that overflows in mercy and compassion to, to, to other sinners just, just like us. That's what marks out someone who has uh, come to know Christ. And actually, if, if we are Christians here this morning, how we respond to those who are seen as sinners, in adverted commas, the tax collectors of this world, the Matthews in this world, how we respond to them reveals a whole lot about our theology, about how we see ourselves, how we view the good news of Jesus. These Pharisees, how did they respond to the Matthews of this world? They're appalled that Jesus should spend any time at all with them. What does that reveal about them? Well, it shows us that they see themselves as infinitely better. They see themselves as a class apart. They see themselves as essentially good. So they have no need of Jesus. The reality is that they are kidding themselves. And if we think along those lines too, 
then we are too. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 20, the kind of teaching block that precedes all all that we've been looking at here. Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. That's a shocking thing to say. And if that's true, well, who, who then can enter the kingdom? If these guys can't, or later on in, in, uh, in the New Testament, Romans 3, Paul puts it like this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is, this is the reality. We are all on a completely level playing field when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to God. Um, years ago, when I worked in um, Oxford, and there was a guy that worked, in IFI, worked for IFES, a kind of Christian international student movement, and he would always be saying, um, whenever he would be leading a prayer meeting or, or any of those sorts of things, he would often say, cheer up, you're worse than you think. But the grace of God is bigger than you can possibly imagine. Isn't that good? Cheer up, you're worse than you think. But the grace of God is bigger than you can possibly imagine. Um, That's such a good thing to kind of lay hold of. Maybe you can tattoo it on your dog or something, or spray paint it on your dad's car, or, or maybe just put it on your bathroom mirror. Maybe that's a safer option. So that every morning, when you come to brush your teeth, that's what you see. Cheer up, you're worse than you think. But the grace of God, the cross of Christ, is bigger than you can possibly imagine. Now, I said this is a surprising truth. It's surprising because I think there is a, there's a perception, which for me I think is, is utterly tragic. There's a perception around in culture generally and perhaps sometimes in in church circles too, the perception is that somehow we've got to get ourselves together, we've got to get back on track, we've got to sort ourselves out, and then once we've done that, we can come to Jesus, and and then we can start coming to church. We've got to get sorted first, and then... I say it's tragic, because it is so far removed from the truth that that we see here and that we see in 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 the gospel jesus comes to matthew and calls him right where he is right where he's at jesus is under no illusions what matthew's like what he's done who he'd hurt matthew had no opportunity to make any amends for the choices he'd made he's got no opportunity to fulfill a whole bunch of requirements to tick off and no jesus comes to him right where he is right where he's at says i know you and i want you i love you follow me that's the good news of the gospel isn't it now, with that perception kind of going around culturally and, and in churches, it begs a, a question for us, our church. 
Is, is our church a safe place for those whose lives are messy or shocking or depraved? Do people coming through the doors, do they, do they feel like they have to become sort of socially conservative and get their lives all straight and sorted before they can feel like they're welcome and that they belong? Because that's so contrary to the gospel, isn't it? How we treat sinners shows what our theology really is. Well, what can you do this week to, to remind yourself of just how desperately you need Jesus? What a sinner you are. And how, how he has just poured out his grace and his love into your life. What can you do this week to dwell on how little we deserve from God, yet how generous to us he is in the gospel? The, the more we do that, the more the church culture gets transformed. As we see, we're, we're, all, we're all sinners. We're all, we're all beggars looking to Jesus for, for bread. We're, we're all in the, in the same place. That's what changes us. Well, we need to move on. Um, surprising truth Number two, much more uh, briefly, um, is this, that, that Jesus, he's our bridegroom calling us to a wedding feast. He's our bridegroom calling us to a wedding feast. It's fascinating, this is how Jesus describes himself to the guys that come to him ask, asking a question. Now, we don't have um, time to get into fasting um, I, I think it's, it's some, something that is perhaps much misunderstood. Essentially, it's the practice of going without food for a, a specified time in order to have focused periods of, of prayer and, and really seeking God. It's not a way to kind of try and twist God's arm into doing something you want, and it might not be appropriate for anyone and everyone to do. But from time to time, it is a good thing to do, to have a kind of focused period calling out to God in prayer patch for a particular thing that he's laid on your heart to, to be praying for now here's the thing fasting um, periods of fasting are not typically and certainly not in the kind of Jewish tradition here they're not typically joyful times often times of lamenting and longing and, and sorrow and it's with that in mind that Jesus answers their question saying surprisingly to them he's a bridegroom and he's calling us to to a wedding feast now weddings at the time typically lasted a whole week can you imagine that um, the bridegroom's family would literally open up their home for a week they would be feasting they'd be rejoicing they'd be dancing there'd be hospitality for, for, for a week, for an extended period. Everything was paid for by the bridegroom's family. It was all free to, to anyone who came to come and enjoy and to celebrate and to feast. What an amazing picture of the kingdom that Jesus is coming to bring in, that is. It's not sort of joyless drudgery and empty rituals, but it's joyful celebration. 
rejoicing with the bridegroom. Now, I wonder if we were to go out to the high street and just ask 100 people, what pops into your head when you think about Christianity? How highly would joy, celebration, how highly would those feature in the answers that we might get back? And how highly would relationship, a relationship with Jesus, how, how high would that come up on the list as well? Perhaps it would all be, it's all about you know, stuff you've got to do and it's all, you know, you've got to stop enjoying yourself and start just doing all these boring things. Perhaps that's the perception that's out there in, in the world around us. So this is a, is a hugely surprising image to use, isn't it? Busting myths. The joy and the relationship element here. It might be that there's overtones of words from Hosea in Jesus' mind here as well, as, as, as he said these words in, in chapter 2 of Hosea. Prophetically speaking of the Lord showing mercy to his people despite their sin and their unfaithfulness to him. Uh, Hosea 2, verse 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Perhaps that's in Jesus' mind as he's saying these, these very words. But I want us to, just as we finish up, to dwell on this idea of Jesus being our bridegroom. What happens at a wedding? Bride and groom make promises, make commitments to one another. I wonder if you've ever thought of your relationship with Jesus in, in this kind of way. Maybe it's a slightly weird concept for guys to be thinking of um, Jesus as, as a bridegroom. But stick with me, because actually it's not too weird for us. Actually, it's a thoroughly biblical way of, of, of thinking about uh, things. So in, in Ephesians 5, the great chapter of Paul about marriage, saying husbands love your wives and all the rest of it, at the end of that, that, that section... Paul says, uh, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So a bridegroom at his wedding publicly commits himself to his bride. He publicly commits to, to love them, to be faithful to them. Or maybe you've had first-hand experience of husbands failing at the vows that they've made on their wedding days, perhaps in family or friends or, 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 or even yourself. And, and you know it's, it's painful and it's devastating. Why is it so painful and devastating? Well, partly because that's just not the way it should be. Well, we, as, we, as we look at our Bibles, as we look at the Lord Jesus we can see that he is the perfect bridegroom. He is a perfect husband. His love is selfless and perfect. He is utterly faithful. He is utterly committed to us. In Ephesians 5, husbands, we're to love our wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us. This is, this is our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. He gave himself up for us. He demonstrated his love and his faithfulness once and for all on that cross at Calvary. 
He's our bridegroom and he's calling us to joy. Now I wonder this morning if we find that our joy is perhaps not what it could be, not perhaps what it, what it was previously. The temptation is for us to focus on our love for him, to focus on, on our faithfulness to him and, and our commitment to him. But the answer is to, to look, to fix our eyes on him, to look to his love for us, his faithfulness to us, his commitment to us. The more, the more we do that, the more our joy grows. Well, let's, um, let's pray. Time has gone. Let's, um, let's turn to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, how we thank you that if we're trusting you this morning, it's because you came to call us. You didn't wait for us to get right, sorted, pull our bootstraps up, but, but you came to us right where we were at and our point of need. And you saved us, you rescued us. How we thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve, but instead shower on us love, forgiveness, grace, mercy. Father, would you grant us joy in our walk with you. Joy dis- despite our wh- whatever may be going on in our lives. Thank you that we can be filled with joy because of these eternal truths, because of the, what you've done for us, that nothing can change, nothing can, can take that away. Help us to rejoice in you. And help us as individuals, as families, as a church family, to be seeking mercy and love instead of empty rituals. Help us to be selflessly looking out to the needs of others. As Would your love overflow out of us to the world around, to our church family, to our immediate family? Please, Lord, have mercy on us. Please, Lord, fill us with your spirit. Fill us with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.